I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Megan Murphy. Today, we're going to be looking at the implications of the unexpected departure of Lloyd's chief executive, Antonio Horta Osorio, and his departure due to medical reasons and what that means for the banks. We'll also be taking a look back at UK bank earnings and also what we can expect to see as the earnings season concludes this week. Second, we're going to be looking at the fallout from the collapse of MF Global and what lessons can be learned. Have things really not changed since the financial crisis? And finally, we're going to take a look at Bob Diamond's lecture for the BBC on the place of banks in society and his assertion that even today, banks can still be cuddly. Joining me this week is the FT's retail banking correspondent, Charlene Goff. Charlene, let's start right off with the biggest story of last week, which was the unexpected temporary leave of the Lloyd's chief executive on a word that we don't frequently see in banking circles, given it's such a macho driven environment, which is that he says he actually needs to take some time out due to extreme fatigue and stress. What is going on behind the scenes here? Lloyd's have their results tomorrow. Very tense time for the banks, given where it is. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a huge shock to everyone. I think no one really saw this coming. You know, he, Antonio, joined Lloyd's six or seven months ago. I mean, he's obviously been working incredibly hard, but people thought he was still the man to turn this bank around to, you know, get over the multitude of challenges they have ahead of them. And it appears that it has taken its toll in a very unexpected way. I mean, this leaves Lloyd's in an incredibly difficult position. Uh, Not only do they not have a chief executive to drive them through this incredibly important time, but it seems very much unclear whether he'll be able to make it back at all. And there seems to be a growing consensus among board members and among senior executives at the bank that he may not be able to return. And if he does, it will be a lot longer than the six to eight weeks that Lloyds has warned he may be off for. Were there any signs of this before? I mean, he came in with such fanfare, as someone said, I think, in the paper today, arrived on a golden chariot. He was, from all intents and purposes, you know, hard driving, exactly the man, huge bounce when he joined, huge package, huge pay package coming in. Were there any signs? Did you have any inkling? Did board members have any inkling? Or was it just a very sudden onset? Well, I think the rumor mill has gone into overdrive, unsurprisingly. And a lot of people have been saying to us that in the recent weeks, he had missed some key meetings. He was looking incredibly tired and harassed at his job. He was unable to do the things, you know, that only a few months ago he would have taken in his stride and done, you know, very easily. I mean, a key turning point last week was that he missed uh, a hearing uh, in front of a panel of parliamentary members, which is highly unusual for a bank chief executive to do. And that clearly set the alarm bells ringing. I think there had been signs before that, but not a huge time before. I mean, I think it was a matter of weeks rather than months. And people who had seen him recently said that he had looked quite ill. He had lost a lot of weight. He was looking very tired. Uh, He'd lost, you know, what people say that his characteristic sort of sparkle in his eyes had gone. 
But I think really the the board and the chairman, you know, is insistent that they didn't see it coming. And I do believe that. I think, you know, he had been covering it up, I guess, for some time. And it leaves, uh, as I said, Lloyd's in a very difficult position, given the lack of any sort of credible person to take to fill his shoes. They've handed over to Tim Tookie, the finance director, in, in the meantime. But as we know, you know, he's leaving in February and he didn't leave on hugely great terms by all accounts. So he's kind of in a difficult position. He's the one they've had to turn to, which really shows that there is a bit of a vacuum at the top. And who are the names in the frame if Antonio doesn't decide to return or doesn't can't return within the six month time frame that they've you know sort of that people think may be the longest, who have people already emerged as contenders? Well, Sir Wynne will have to dust off his uh, shortlist from a year ago. I mean that had a number of other other UK bankers, Richard Meddings at Standard Chartered, Anthony Jenkins, a retail chief at Barclays. These were all names at the time, but. You know, they obviously weren't given a huge amount of consideration back then because Antonio was easily the, the, the best candidate. A new name on the scene uh, that we were picking up last week is David Roberts, who is the quite a low-profile non-executive director at Lloyd's, but he has had some solid retail banking experience. He ran an Austrian lender and he's quite respected. So he could be a, a candidate. There's also been rumours that, you know, Glenn Marino could come in. I mean, we see that as very unlikely. You know, he's not had any core executive you know experience running a huge high street bank so I think that would be nothing more than a temporary solution if Lloyd's have to look more long term I think they're going to struggle I mean not least because you know they're still paying Antonio a lot of money and he brought in a, a number of key executives with him from Santander you know Antonio Lorenzo Juan Colombas you know these guys are very much his men. And you just get the impression that, you know, anyone coming into the bank afresh would want to bring in their own top team. And so Lloyd's would have a, a number of big payouts on its hands. And, you know, how much would it have left to employ another big hitter? Um, all this will come out over the next few weeks. We're not expecting any rushed announcement from Lloyd's. I think they're just going to see how Antonio goes. Hopefully he will recover. But I think investors and you know senior executives at the bank are concerned even if he could would he be able to do the job differently in a way that you know meant that he was able to maintain his health which is obviously a crucial point here well but we will be watching the results tomorrow and see if anything further comes out let's turn now to mf global the broker dealer which collapsed very quickly in a in a sort of spiral that many people found uh, worrisome echoes of the crisis. This is a broker-dealer that uh, John Corzine, the former head of Goldman Sachs, was trying to diversify away from its core future brokers business into being a uh, investment bank in the sense of doing proprietary trading, um, doing financing for clients, etc. was moving it to a, a, a riskier, but um, but hopefully, in, in, in Mr. Corzine's view, a more credible sort of mid-tier player, and it, and it unwound very quickly. Charlene, lots of people have said this raised warning flags that actually not much has changed in terms of stopping um, sort of monitoring business models and monitoring risk. Is it a case of things haven't changed, or is it a case of this was a model that was being changed that seemed to have ramped up risk and failed, and therefore, in a sort of counterintuitive way, actually shows, you know, the sort of merits of the new system where business models that aren't successful are going to fail. Yeah, I think you could probably argue it either way, to be honest. I mean, one point that people have been talking about is that this shows, you know, where regulators have focused their activities and where perhaps there's been a gap. And, 
you know, MF Global wasn't a bank. There's no tax-paying customers that have been affected by this. So in a way, it shows that this is what should be able to happen. This is how capitalism works. Things get out of hand. Things fail. But on the other side of the argument, these are the core activities that, you know, are very reminiscent of Lehman. People are worried that there's a real echo here. And, you know, people are worried that nothing has changed sufficiently, you know, four years on. And I think that really sends shivers down the market spine. I mean, you've been following this closer than I have. So, I mean, the echoes of Lehman are there, right? I mean, I think that definitely the echoes are there and just the sense of a institution being able to fail so rapidly and sort of the fallout of I think what it's raised most is just do we have a credible system of resolving financial failure that is robust and that is capable of dealing with institutional failure like this without having contagion, without having a knock-on effect across the system? Now, so far, MF Global has shown to be you know, we still don't know, but has been fairly contained failure. Doesn't seem to have had a massive systemic disruption. As you said, it's quite, you know, comparatively quite small compared with, you know, huge Wall Street behemoth institutions. I do think, though, it has flagged up this issue of resolution. The second issue that people have been pointing to a lot is that what people say sort of drove MF Global down was its exposure to sovereign debt in Europe. John Corzine, who is a former uh, bond dealer at Goldman Sachs sort of came up through that and was, you know, sort of known for his savvy in government bonds, uh, took a big risk and sort of um, exposed the firm and took, you know, took big positions on Italy, um, Spain, Portugal, on the theory that Europe would never allow, European governments would never allow these countries to default. Now, uh, in his defense, I guess, those positions actually now uh, had MF Global been allowed to succeed, there was nothing sort of fundamentally hugely wrong with those positions in terms of them being hugely money losing. The issue was more that once those positions were revealed, analysts and investors got incredibly spooked because as we see today with what's going on in Italy and people talking about, obviously, we have the Greek default situation. All eyes are on Italy this morning. Analysts and investors just did not feel comfortable with this level of exposure. And that coupled with the disclosure that they had been asked to bolster their capital, coupled with the disclosure, you know, also that he was trying to fundamentally shift the the business model towards a model that was much more dependent on proprietary trading, much more dependent on old school investment banking, uh, led to a very rapid demise. And also, surely it shines the spotlight on the whole issue of, you know, management and responsibility at the top, because he spoke to you and Patrick Jenkins, our banking editor, only a month, even less, I think, days before all this came to a head. um, And either... He wasn't being inc- particularly upfront around the picture emerging at his at his uh, business, or he just genuinely didn't see the problems brewing to the extent that they were. I mean, I just found that that interview he gave you unbelievable, wasn't it? Yeah, it's what Patrick and I have discussed about that is: did he know um, at the time that MF Global was going to be downgraded? Which obviously, when the sovereign risk people became aware of the sovereign risk, it was downgraded by. Rating agency, and that sort of also fed into this looped spiral. Now, at the time Patrick and I did the interview with him, he was quite candid about. Um, he said, "I want to be the next Goldman Sachs." I mean, those were exactly. the exact quote from him. I think that will take time to build. I I don't see anything wrong with the. He said that another quote from that interview was, "I don't see anything wrong with the old style moniker of investment banking. I don't see anything wrong with a lot of these businesses and serving as the chief intermediary of risk." I mean, his point was really that as global regulation of the banking system increases, banks will have to look 
customers, clients will have to look to other entities, call it the shadow banking system, call it hedge funds, call it whatever you're going to do, but that people are going to step in to these areas that banks no longer have the ability to deploy capital to be in businesses that either are outlawed by regulators or that simply are too capital intensive to make any money for them. And he saw MF Global as being a real a real ability to sort of bite into those businesses, whether that's in commodities, you know, whether that's in some slightly sexier areas, you know, whether it's in in trading on behalf of, you know, the book, the institution's own book. Yeah, it was a fascinating interview. It was fascinating when a week later, the institution no longer exists. And I, you know, I think regulators will be looking at the fact that do we have a credible resolution regime in place for financial institutions? What's the systemic effect? Do other are other banks in the situation? We've seen Jeffries, another mid-sized investment bank, have huge share price pros, and they've continually had to come out and deny that they have similar type of sovereign exposure and continually say it's hedged. So it's still playing out, and, and we'll see how it plays out. But it's been definitely a very small, uh, very contained look back at 2008. Mm-hmm. Finally, we'll, we're turning to Bob Diamond and his inaugural BBC Today uh, business lecture and sort of his thoughts on the place of banks in society. Um, Charlene, this speech sort of took some people by surprise because not too long ago, Mr. Diamond was saying that the time for remorse needs to be over. Um, And here in this speech, he seemed to be saying, actually, banks need to step up and be better citizens. So what's what's the word here? What's what's he trying to say? Well, I mean, talking about what's changed since 2008, you know, this is quite an, an interesting thing to look at there. Because as you say, you know, Bob Diamond, back at the start of this year, just as soon as he'd taken over as chief executive, he came out incredibly strongly in front of the Treasury Select Committee and said, you know, the time for remorse and apology needs to be over Basically, the signal was everyone needs to move on. You know, banks have made mistakes. Yes, but we're time to get over it now. And there was this enormous backlash against that because I think people thought someone in his shoes really didn't have the right to decide when, you know, the public needed to get off the bank's back. He seems to have recognized that. And increasingly, we've been getting these noises from him about sort of citizenship and about banks, you know, playing the kind of good card in the in the in the public domain um and this was a culmination of that you know he said that banks needed to be better citizens they needed to take their responsibilities seriously um but you know the, i think the problem genuinely is that no one really believes that banks are or can be or really want to be and when pushed you know cuddly cuddly exactly that's the adjective that he used the following day in an interview with the BBC and John Humphreys. He said banks could be cuddly. Now, I don't think, I don't know anyone who would find Mr Diamond particularly cuddly. But I think the most serious point is that when you really look at the fundamentals of this industry, you know, we talk about MF Global, we talk about, you know, the huge problems that Lloyd still have. You know, we had RBS last week saying that it would expect to almost possibly halve the size of its investment banking business again because, the market conditions are so poor. You know, what has really fundamentally changed? And, you know, we're still seeing these huge pay packages. I mean, we talk about, you know, there's been some interest again on how much Antonio was paid and how much pressure that's putting on people in these roles. 
and how difficult a position it leaves the bank when they, you know, apparently able to do the job in the way they hope they would be. You know, for Mr. Diamond, you know, he's been pushed and pushed on the issue of pay. Um, he is still one of the highest paid bankers in the UK, if not the world. He's earned a phenomenal sum of money over the last few years. And I think as we're seeing, you know, this wave of protests across the UK, across Europe, anti-capitalism, people, you know, people just don't see any responsibility from the banks. They don't see any desire to change their own ways. And you can get up and say over and over again, banks are behaving better, banks are becoming better citizens, but where is the evidence? And I think that just hasn't come through yet. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this, um, having done this job, both Charlene and I joined about the same time on the banking team. And just if I look at one issue that has defined, certainly my career as the investment banking correspondent has been pay. Hmm. And I would definitely say that if there's one thing that continually surprises me in interviews with people like Mr. Diamond or Brady Dugan at Credit Suisse or senior people at UBS or any of the European banks and the U.S. banks as well, it's just their reluctance to tackle this issue of a fundamental realignment of pay in the sector. Uh, you can, you know, you said about RBS, you know, cutting as much as half their investment banking business. RBS was literally in a situation where even without accruing any bonuses for its investment banking staff, its cost to income ratio in the investment bank was 93%. For every 100 pounds that RBS earned in investment banking, 93 were spent out on pay and on fixed expenses. These, this model is unsustainable. And I do think that putting aside this sort of, you know, Occupy Wall Street, Occupy the London Stock Exchange, this sort of immense public anger towards the banking industry, which still exists and, you know, I believe is at the core of a lot of what we see across the Eurozone right now. Put that aside. I mean, there is also, you know, this fundamental challenge of how this structure goes forward and how whether it still works as a model amid increased regulation. And I think that Mr. Diamond can say, you know, banks are taking better citizenship. Banks want to play a bigger role in society. But exactly as you say, until people see some sort of fundamental change from the top down, and which we absolutely have not seen. You know, remember, last year was the year when they all said we're going to stop taking zero bonuses. He, you know, Bob took. 10 million. There were two people at his bank who got paid over 40. Um, and those aren't even probably the highest paid. Yeah, so exactly. I do think that that still is at the core of, of a lot of the anger. It is. And the other point I think that's really important is when you look at actually what the citizenship means, you know, a lot of it is just what banks should be doing. I mean, it's it's them saying we lent this much to businesses, we help small businesses. You know, well, that is your job. You know, that's not going the extra mile. That's what banks should always have been focused on. You know, particularly a bank like Barclays, which, you know, has a huge role in the UK and supports many businesses. But, you know, it can't claim credit for that. You know, that is at the heart of its what its business model should be and if they really want to prove that they're becoming better citizens I think the public and and the press is going to need a lot more than that yeah well, well as we move towards the uh, end of the year I'm sure these discussions will become incredibly uh, much more intense about what everyone's going to be taking home this year but that's all we have time for this week thanks again to Charlene for joining me all that's left to thank you the, uh, the listener for listening Banking Weekly is produced by Emily Cadman and see you next week For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.